Well, good morning. Um, me and my music stand, sorry. Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. It'll be on the screen here in just a minute. Uh, while you're turning there, um, I feel like I should offer an explanation. Several of you have asked me about the pumpkin pie that I ate over Thanksgiving. Um, I did not, to set the record straight, eat that in one sitting. It was uh, about 6 o'clock on Thursday night to about 9 o'clock on Saturday night. So I think I averaged one and a half to two pieces every trip to the pie plate. So that's what happened. It may or may not change your opinion to me, but that's the record. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. All right. Matthew chapter 2. Hey, we're going to read the first 11 verses today. They're the same verses that Robert preached from last week. Um, But we're going to come at this text from a different angle this morning. And where Robert preached about the actual gifts that the Magi gave and the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and what our response in giving should be, I want to preach about what the response of the actual Magi were and how and why they worshiped Jesus. There's enough truth in God's word for more than one sermon to come from the same text because in the Bible is where we meet God. So that's my prayer for us this morning. So let's read Matthew 2, 1 through 11. Do I need to back up? Is the feedback bad? Is that good? Okay. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Jerusalem, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah." For from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is God's word. Here we have one of the most familiar passages of the Christmas story. We have the star, the wise men, the magi, uh, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. But I want to let's establish a little bit of history before we get into this text and just see what's going on. And then we're going to look specifically at the magi and how they responded to Jesus. So we're familiar with the Christmas story. We can visualize the manger, the baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph, lowing cattle, shepherds, singing angels, wise men, the star above the stable. We've probably got a picture or if not an actual manger scene somewhere in our house with, with, with all of those elements here. We have, we have, we have a couple. Um, and that's all well and good. But in, in reality, uh, by the time the Magi arrived to meet Jesus, Jesus was probably somewhere between six months to two years old. The manger is gone in this account. Mary and Joseph are in a house now. There's no singing angels, no shepherds, most definitely no lowing cattle. We can know this because of the extra-biblical historical record related to Herod, 
We know that the census that Luke records in Luke 2 uh, was, was sent out in the year 6 BC. And how can you say, well, how can Jesus be born BC? Well, there was a shift in the dates between the Gregorian and Julian calendars, and it got shifted. So that's a different story for not a sermon. That's a history lesson. But most scholars believe that 6 BC was around the time Jesus was born. And Herod, we know King Herod, Herod the first, Herod the Great, uh, died in 4 BC. So this account happened somewhere between 6 BC and 4 BC. So Jesus was likely two years old or under. We also know that the visit of the Magi didn't take place at the time of Jesus' birth because they traveled to see him after he had been born. So then, who were the Magi and why are they significant? Well, most scholars believe that the Magi, that these Magi were either Babylonian or Persian priests or court magicians. Um, They weren't kings. We don't know how many there were. Contrary to the popular song, there weren't necessarily three. We just know that there were more than one. All we know is that um, they came to visit. What we do know is that they were from a pagan culture that placed great value on astrology and astronomy. And in fact, that's why the Magi became so prominent in Babylonian and Persian culture, because they attempted to, they attempted to interpret the scripture, I'm sorry, they, inter- they, they attempted to interpret the present and predict the future by reading the stars. And they were sort of the court magicians for the aristocracy. Magi weren't really held in high regard by Jewish culture. Matter of fact, one Jewish rabbi in the first century wrote this, he who learns from a magus, that's the singular form of magi, he who learns from a magus is worthy of death. Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher and historian, referred to the magi as vipers and scorpions. But let's not think that the Magi were necessarily completely unfamiliar with Jewish customs, religion, or even Jewish prophecy. They were in, if they were, in fact, Babylonian or Persian, they would have been well acquainted with Jewish literature because of the exile. Very likely, since we read in the book of Daniel that he interacted quite frequently with the Magi, they would have very likely been interested in the book of Daniel and his writings. Some scholars even believe that these particular magi were God-fearing Gentiles that, um, much like we read about in Acts with Cornelius and Lydia. And there could be some merit to that because if they were, in fact, God-fearing Gentiles, uh, that is, Gentiles who followed the ways of Judaism without converting to be becoming full-on Jews, uh, they very likely could have known, uh, again, because of the Jewish influence of the exile, what Numbers twenty four seventeen says, that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, which coupled with their understanding of astrology would explain their interest in the star, as well as the prophecy that went with it about a coming king and ruler. Okay, history lesson out of the way. That's the background. Whatever details we know or may not know about the Magi, we know this about their reaction to Jesus. They expected him, They saw him, and they worshiped him. And in that, we learn much about the God who came in the flesh to reconcile us to himself. So let's unpack these these ideas, and we'll see just who it is these magi came to meet. So they expected him. In the beginning of the passage that we just read, the question the magi ask when they arrive in Jerusalem is really interesting. It's also really telling. If they were from Babylon or Persia, and I I think they probably were, 
to get to Jerusalem was, was, a, was around 800 miles or so through the desert. It's about a 40-day trip, give or take. When they show up in Jerusalem, they begin asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And because we saw his star and we've come to worship him. Now, the structure of that sentence in the original Greek gives the impression that they were literally walking around the streets of Jerusalem saying, hey, where's the new king that was just born? They were expecting everyone to have knowledge of this. They were expecting everyone to be celebrating that there had been a new king born because of the, the signs that they, were, that they were interpreting. Now, there were two problems with that. First, Herod was king. Herod was king of the Jews, and Herod had not been born king of the Jews. Herod had assumed the, the office and title of king by political positioning and family favors. The second problem is that no one knew what the Magi were talking about. Herod was troubled by their questions, as was the rest of the city. And the religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes that we read about, they, they seemed to know what the Magi were talking about, but they didn't seem to care. Otherwise, they would have been just as excited as the Magi. So these, these foreigners then, who, have, who, who no one in Jewish culture liked, they show up in town and they expect to meet the promised king. And not just a king, but they expected to meet the king of the Jews, namely the Messiah. And we know that they were looking for the Messiah and not just a new political leader because when word gets to Herod about them walking around the city and asking about the king that has been born, the question he asks his advisors, his spiritual advisors, he says, where is the Christ to be born? And that means the Messiah so the Magi knew exactly who it is they were looking for, and they expected everyone else to know as well. Which begs the question, how did a group of people from another culture in a faraway land, a group who the Puritan writer John Milton referred to them as star-led wizards, how did these people come to expect the Messiah, the King of the Jews? Well, quite frankly, we just don't know. Perhaps they retained enough of the Jewish, Jewish influence from the exile that they had remembered enough of what the Old Testament said about the coming of the Messiah. Perhaps they were, in fact, God-feared Gentiles, and they trusted the Hebrew literature. Or, perhaps miraculously, the Lord revealed to them who he was the way he did with Abraham and Moses and Peter at Caesarea Philippi and Paul on the Damascus Road how they came to expect Jesus is of far less significance than that they did expect Jesus. What we do know is that God orchestrates his universe to ensure that his son is known and worshiped. That is his great goal in all things. And King David in the Psalms says that the heavens declare the glory of God. It's fitting then that God revealed the Messiah to a group of people who paid attention to astrology by leading them with a star. God has purposed from all eternity that he would redeem mankind and that the Messiah would be a light for the nations. And Matthew's gospel emphasizes the universal message of hope for all people in Jesus. He's not just the savior of Israel. He's the savior of all who believe in him, all who trust in him, all who turn from their sins and turn to God and worship and obey him. This is exactly what the Magi did. 
even to the effect that they traveled for over a month to a culture that hated them. They ignored the established monarch in favor of a child king with a birthright. And when they finally arrived, were probably surprised to discover that no one else in the city even cared. These were people who, fu- who were fully expecting to meet their king. In fact, J.C. Ryle, the great biblical author and commentator and scholar and pastor, said of the Magi that we read of no greater faith in the whole volume of the Bible related to the Magi. Now, while I might not take it quite that far, they certainly did exhibit great faith in expecting Jesus. Are, are you expecting Jesus this Christmas? Not the what can he do for you, Jesus Jr., that our culture is so fond of, but the real Jesus, the Jesus who is born King of the Jews and brings good news of great joy for all people. Are we expecting to meet that Jesus this Christmas? I hope so, because he wants to meet you. And look at the scene in Matthew 2, right? We've got an an unwed teenage mother. We've got a child born out of wedlock. We've got pagan, Gentile, star-led wizards. Picture Gandalf. It's not really the Christmas card that you want to send out to people, right? It's not one that you want to hang prominently on your refrigerator door. Hey, look at the unwed teenage mother, the wedlock, out-of-wedlock child and these like Gandalf-looking guys. Merry Christmas. But what a beautiful scene it is. As commentator and pastor Douglas Sean O'Donnell says about this passage, quote, this scene depicts so perfectly the good news of the kingdom. This is good news for all people, even the least likely candidates for God's love. Samaritan adulteresses, immoral prostitutes, greasy tax collectors on the take, despised Roman soldiers, ostracized lepers, and me and you. Are you a Gentile? Are you a sinner? If so, I have some good news for you. The grasp of the king of the kingdom of heaven can reach even you and even now. So come expectantly to Jesus this Christmas. You are exactly the kind of person he came for. Next, they they saw him. What I find really striking in these verses is that there are really three very different reactions to Jesus here. In the religious leaders and the chief priests, we see indifference. In Herod, we see hostility. But in the Magi, we see worship. Why? Well, the reason is not because the Magi were the ones who physically laid eyes on Jesus. Seeing is not believing. They believed that Jesus was the promised king before they even got to Jerusalem. But the religious leaders and Herod It's not because they couldn't see Jesus physically that they responded with indifference and hostility, but it's because of their spiritual blindness. And as such, they rejected and even fought against the things of God. And I say that because when Herod was at, when he asked his team of religious advisors where the Messiah was to be born, they knew the answer immediately. The chief priests and the scribes, uh, they didn't need to look up chapter and verse that, 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 
passage from the Old Testament that they quote there is Micah 5.2. They knew Micah 5.2 by heart. They quoted it to him. But however, their spiritual blindness to, what, to, to the reality of God and what he had promised in his word, uh, was it revealed their indifference to that word being fulfilled even in their very presence. The fact that they knew the answer to Herod's question isn't surprising. They memorized the Old Testament. Anybody done that? I haven't done that. What is surprising is the fact that they didn't care. Had they actually believed the words that they quoted to Herod from Micah, they would have gone with the Magi to worship Jesus, and they would have been just as expectantly excited as as the Magi were that he had come. Instead, they went right on living, just like nothing out of the ordinary had happened, and the coming of the Messiah made no difference to them. These are people, these scribes and religious leaders, they're people who had the Word of God. They knew what the Bible said, and they could quote much of it from memory. They knew about the promised Messiah, but they didn't know the promised Messiah. What a sad reaction to Jesus. But you know, we see it all the time in church. Matt Chandler puts it well when he says, I'm horrified at, these who, at those who have no relationship to Christ, who have no prayer in their lives, no understanding of the Word of God, no growth in the objective realities of Christ in their life, and yet file into churches every week and sing songs and lift their hands and get involved in a thousand church activities, never even bothered by the fact that they don't know God. Chandler goes on to say that we've got this living God who says, come and know me, come and grow in confidence with me, boast in the fact that you know me, let me fill your heart, I am an inexhaustible fountain of joy, walk with me, let me work in you, let me deliver you, let me save you, let me stretch you, and we respond, no God, I'm good, I'm just trying not to cuss when I drive. The reality of Jesus makes no difference to the indifferent. That's a redundant statement, but let it sit on you. The reality of Jesus makes no difference to the indifferent. The other reaction is Herod's, who's openly hostile to Jesus. Herod was deeply troubled by the Magi looking for a new king. Now, Herod was afraid of losing his power, his political influence, and his, and his, his, his established um, influence over the culture and his, his status. He had a reputation of ruthlessly destroying anyone that came even remotely close to threatening his rule. He was a homicidal maniac. Um, matter of fact, one of the, one of the things he did I, in preparing for this, I didn't know this, Herod was so hated by the people, um, when it came time for him to die, he was really sick. He, he knew he was going to die soon, so he took all of the, um, he took, a, like, I think it was like 200 people. He took of, of the, like, the influential class, you know, the, some of the priests, some of the leaders, um, some of the politicians, and he, he kind of sequestered them, and he gave orders that on the, uh, that on the, that on the news of his death, um, they were all to be executed, because he wanted someone to weep in Jerusalem when he died. He was crazy. He was a homicidal maniac. His cruelty rivaled Nero and Stalin and Mussolini or Kim Jong-un. But while Herod's opposition to Jesus was primary political, that a new king was born with a birthright that could take away his throne and replace the throne of a puppet king of the Roman Empire, Herod's reaction reveals much more. 
Herod's hostility to Jesus is simply the default position of the human heart. We are by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, enemies of God, and rejecting him comes quite naturally to us. That's because if Jesus is king, we are not. If he is king, we are dethroned. If he is king, it means our submission to him is required. If he is king, we are no longer free to lead our own lives the way that we see fit. If he is king and is who he says he is, we will either love him or hate him, but we certainly can't ignore him. It's not really a nice, warm Christmas story to tell by the fireplace over hot chocolate. This is a conflict of two warring kingdoms, the kingdom of sin and the kingdom of heaven. So then, who is this king that the Magi expected and saw? Who is this that revealed himself to shepherds and wizards and to an unwed teenage mother and her blindsided fiancé? Who is this child who was born king of the Jews? This is the one Genesis refers to as the seed of the woman who will bruise his heel when he crushes the serpent's head. This is the one that Balaam, that we already quoted in Numbers, that Balaam prophesied about when he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is the one of whom Isaiah said, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This is the child born to us, the son to us given, who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who will sit on the throne of David, upholding justice and righteousness forevermore. This is the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, whose chastisement brought us peace and by whose wounds we are healed. This is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, whose glory has been seen, uh, the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the one who will gather a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language that will stand before him singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. This is the one who declares over all creation, behold, I am making all things new. This is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is Jesus, our Emmanuel. God with us. And this is how the Magi saw Jesus and why they worshiped. How do you see him this Christmas? Because if it's anything less, the message of Christmas is lost on you. Christmas is found in Jesus himself. Jesus came to redeem us for himself, to shatter our indifference, and to conquer our hostility. He has come to make us right with God and give us deeper reality with himself. So as Luke tells us, fear not, for this is good news of great joy for all people, for unto us is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When we hear that message and respond not with indifference or hostility, when we lift up the empty hands of faith and receive the salvation that the Lord gives us through King Jesus, our reaction to him is that of the Magi, worship. 
and they worshiped him. Verse 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with, with great joy. Excuse me. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. This is the proper response to Jesus. And don't you just love that among some of the first people to bow down and fall on their knees and worship him were Gentile sinners? What is worship here in this text? Well, I I think it involves four main components, and I, I borrow these from John Piper. First, the Magi acknowledge that Jesus is king. Herod didn't do that. The scribes and the religious leaders didn't do that. But the Magi did. They referred to him as the king of the Jews, and they recognized his rightful authority. Second, the Magi, they dignified Jesus by falling down before him. Falling down or bowing before someone is to say that you are exalted and I am not. You are high and I am low. You are worthy of honor and I am not. It's to proclaim the position of honor and exhibit our position of humility. Third, there is in their worship joy. And Robert talked a lot about joy a couple of weeks ago, so we won't go into a lot of detail, but true worship is joyful worship. True worship isn't, it's not just acknowledging the authority and the dignity of Jesus, but it's doing so joyfully. Because when you see Jesus as more beautiful and more desirable than anything else in all creation, Jesus himself becomes your inexhaustible fountain of joy, like Matt Chandler said. And I love how Matthew puts it in verse 10, that the Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It it almost seems that Matthew is at a loss for words when describing the joy that the Magi had because he takes it to the fourth superlative. Isn't that great? That's the kind of joy Jesus gives us that we can give back to him. That's what Christmas is all about. God the Father, through the incarnation of Christ, bringing joy to the world and reconciling sinners to himself. There is no more joyous message than that. And then fourth, there's an attitude of giving in their worship. And again, we talked about that last week, but uh, the type of joyful worship that stirs up in us attitudes that we could never manufacture. Suffice, Suffice it to say then that by giving Jesus their best, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, which were very valuable, as Robert shared with us last week, The Magi are intensifying their own desire for Jesus. John Piper again, here's how he explains this. When you give a gift to Christ like this, of this value, not necessarily actual gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but when you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying, the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich things from you. I've not come for your things, but for you yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more rather than the things. By giving you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I'm saying more earnestly and more authentically that you are my treasure and not the things. I wonder what you think of that. Is Jesus your treasure? Are you expecting him? 
Do you see him for who he really is? And if so, will you worship him that way? As you consider Jesus this Christmas, can you sing with Charles Wesley? Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit rule in our hearts alone, and by thine all-sufficient merit raise us to thy glorious throne. Expect him, see him, and worship him. Let me invite the band up as we close and pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus that we might become right with you. Um, Thank you for sending him into our world, Lord, to make things right, to bring us peace with yourself. Lord, I pray as we go into this Christmas season, Lord, that you, um, you will open our eyes to the reality of your son. Help us to expect him. Help us to see him. Help us to worship him. None of us ever get this right, but you can help us. We rest our hope on you this Christmas, and we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate all that that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we'll be down front to pray if you'd like to. It would be our honor to do that. Thanks, guys.